Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. I'm Simon Carley. And I'm Mary Darwood. I'm a consultant nurse in emergency medicine at Imperial College London and I have been an editor and associate editor of the EMJ for the last four years. So welcome to the podcast, Mary. I don't think you've been here before, but you're very welcome. And you're here particularly Thanks, because Sam. you are the editor this month who's done the primary survey, which is the overview of the really interesting papers. All the papers in the EMJ are interesting, but the particularly interesting papers that have caught your eye. And we're just going to have a very little chats about those papers and why they caught your eye and what the key messages are maybe. So what was first, or what was really captured your, your mind this week was actually a personal view, wasn't it? Yes, it was very much a personal view uh, from Kirsten James in Scotland, who is an occupational therapist. And in the view from here, she has described the role and the potential of occupational therapists and what they can bring to the emergency department. And I really like this paper because I think it's an area that we tend not, not to address as well as we could do for the benefit of our patients. So occupational therapists aren't going to be present in every department. So some people will have had experience of this or maybe physiotherapists. But this was a, a unique personal view that really gave some insight into what they could offer. Now, I think you've worked with occupational therapists, is that correct? That's correct, yes. I've worked with them for about the last 12 years, Simon, and they never fail to amaze me at how they can come up with quite simple, pragmatic solutions to what we perceive to be quite impediments to discharging somebody. So their input can be really the difference between somebody having to come into hospital and somebody who desperately wants to go home being able to go home and being able to be discharged safely. And there's some really interesting ideas in this paper from the perspective of somebody who's dealing with a patient that explores what they're trying to do, which is basically get people to to achieve what they want from life and to be able to do the things that they want to do. And with our ageing population and with the changes in the demographics and the type of patients coming to ED, I can really see a role for this. So if you've got an occupational therapist, I think you'll find it interesting to see how they look at emergency care from their perspective. And if you haven't, then maybe this is something which will, you know, light your interest. And I'm sure if you wanted to get a hold of Kirsten James or any other occupational therapist working in other departments, I'm sure they'd be interested in uh, hearing from you. Yes, I, I would I would agree with that, Simon. The article itself has got a lovely scenario in it, which is very easy to identify with. It's the sort of patient we all see on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's lovely to see the the input of the occupational therapist and how she resolves some of the issues that would otherwise mean that this person had, had to be admitted to hospital. Also demonstrates the power of narrative over sometimes the quantitative research. I think there's some really important points in here, not just about putting the numbers into scientific research articles. Now, there were other papers this month which caught your eye. There was some around health promotion, I think, some issues in Dublin. Yes, there is um, a very interesting paper, Simon, from um, Dublin around the knowledge base of stroke patients. Um, I, I thought this was very interesting simply because I'm, I've quite often been fascinated by the, the uh, size and ex expense of health promotion campaigns. And I often wonder uh, to what extent they're actually effective. And clearly this must have crossed the minds of the Dublin, our, our Dublin colleagues who undertook a study of stroke survivors to see just what their knowledge base was at the time of stroke and whether they were aware of any risk factors. 
So this is looking at patients who've actually had a stroke and then going back and asking them whether or not they they really understood what was going on. And if they didn't, well, who did? And we would hope, I suppose, in a public health campaign that people who've had the strokes knew that they were having it, knew what the symptoms were, knew what to do about it. And is, is that what they found? No, not at all. They found that the people who'd had strokes were um, very unaware at the time of their symptoms of what was happening to them and uh, didn't actually even consider themselves at risk of a stroke, weren't very aware of FAST, and clearly it was bystanders that had saved their lives. So that tells us a little bit about the effectiveness of their campaign, but also gives clues about who we should be aiming the future public health campaigns against, I suppose. Yes, I think the the, the conclusion that the uh, authors drew from this study was that um, these the sort of messages that need to be sent out are not simple. You know, it, it's complex. Well, maybe the message needs to be simple, but it's complex how you actually get that message across to the people who really need to hear it. And I suppose one of the other big campaign targets has been cardiovascular disease or cardiac disease. And in Australia, there was a similar sort of article looking at the experience of people who've had acute coronary syndromes. This is um, Louise Cullen and colleagues in Australia, I think. That's right, Simon. This was also a very interesting study. Um, uh, They undertook this study in in both Australia and in New Zealand. And they looked at patients who attended with ACS uh, and cardiac type symptoms and the delay in uh, attending the emergency department. Interestingly, their data compared outcome as to how quickly the patients attended and which way did you think this was going to go when you first saw the title? Well, I wasn't actually surprised at what their findings were, um, that the outcomes for those that are delayed in attending are worse. But I think what was surprising was that the people who should have been there sooner, the people who had high risk factors and who had cardiac disease, should have gone shouldn't have been delaying in going to hospital. I think one of the things they did find was that um, STEMIs generally attend earlier and probably because of the degree of pain that they have. But they found that that the outcomes for those that had delayed uh, were far worse at one year. They they followed these patients up for a year and they had worse outcomes, which I don't think was particularly surprising. But again, it's good information for people who are developing health promotion campaigns of just how to direct and who to direct their information at. So it's interesting, isn't it? I could have thought when I first saw the title that patients with more severe symptoms would present earlier and therefore potentially actually have uh, better outcomes. But this is this kind of doesn't fit that. And I think it's another paper which tells us that the link between symptomatology and severity in cardiac disease it's it's a fairly tenuous link between the two and we have to take all of these patients fairly seriously and again as you say the public health messages are they getting through really good and interesting questions so moving away from the public health side of things yeah there are some other papers in the journal this this month uh, traumatic brain injury emj readership loves its trauma um what did we find out about traumatic brain injury in the elderly this month this is very interesting, Simon, because what, what the study by Kehoe um, and colleagues down in um, Devon, I think in, in the UK, was that uh, the elderly tend to present with a much higher GCS than expected in the presence of traumatic brain injury. 
if I got this right, patients with a similar degree of injury as described on the AIS, the injury severity scales, they don't present in the same way in the elder. They're, they're more alert. Yeah. They've got a high GCS. And that can be confusing for patients. And it can be confusing for clinicians when they're trying to make those assessments. Absolutely. It, it's very confusing for, for clinicians. And certainly from an, a nursing point of view, I would say there'd be a tendency to initially report a patient like this as, oh, they're fine. Their, their GCS is 13, 14. At their, they're not that bad at all. And this... I think might be very relevant to many of the um, trauma patients that we're seeing nowadays, uh, the elderly who, who fall from standing, for example, and who may well just be brought in by a relative as having just fallen over and hit their head. They may have a, a, a much more severe brain injury than the GCS would suggest. And I've seen some recent data looking at the elderly suggesting that the time to diagnosis for comparable injuries is much longer in the elderly. I wonder if this is one of the factors that may link into that. I think that the message from this paper definitely is, is that we cannot take the GCS as a given in the elderly person and, and assume that they don't have a more severe brain injury. Okay, and other things in the journal this month about the anticoagulated patient with head injury, something which worries a lot of emergency physicians, and there's been quite a lot of work in the journal about this over the last few years, but it's still unclear sometimes about what we should be doing. Yes, and I think that this is the, the bottom line in, in this study by Battle and colleagues in the UK, and they, they again, were interested in what uh, we should be doing with anticoagulated patients who are presenting as trauma patients. Um, and, of course, as more and more of our patients, trauma patients are older, this is going to become a, a more common problem. So they did a survey of hospitals um, to ask them exactly how they would manage these patients. And... They had a reasonably good response. So it had 106 respondents out of 166 hospitals. And out of that, 24% were from uh, major trauma centres. So I think this is a reasonable uh, response to any sort of survey. Their study uh, presented two scenarios of patients who were on warfarin. And they asked how they would manage these patients. And they found similarities and differences uh, in practice and they felt that their findings reflect the real need there is out there for guidelines in relation to these patients and the management of them. So I think there are some guidelines around certainly locally in my unit we have sort of fairly strict guidelines about the management of this group and there's always the discussions you can have with the haematologists about the management of this potentially very high risk group of patients but I think this survey highlights that we don't have consistency and that probably means there's variation in practice which probably means there's variation in outcome which obviously is not a great idea so if you've not got a departmental-wide policy or hospital policy i think this is worth looking at and seeing where you would fit in with this so nice paper interesting problem potentially very important really and then other things you saw in the journal there was things about severe sepsis in the management of critical ill and the ems services so pre-hospital management of severe, of severe sepsis yes i think this again a contemporary issue. We still don't manage sepsis nearly as well as, as we should do. We still have sort of a high, high mortality from it. So sepsis always sort of hits me when I see a paper. I'll always pick it up and have a read. And I thought this was very interesting, Simon, because it was about pre-hospital identification of sepsis. The study came from Canada, actually, 
but most of the papers in this study uh, were from the UK. And there clearly is a real need for research in this area. What they were trying to establish was whether there, uh, there is good pre-identification uh, pre identification of sepsis in, um, among EMS personnel. And again, they found that the papers were of quite variable quality and there were no OCTs at all, but they reviewed um, 16 cohort studies around uh, sepsis, pre-identification pre of sepsis. Um, they found that EMS practitioners can identify sepsis. I think uh, the, the, their main criteria were vital signs. There's a, a great need for much more research in this area. And I think what was marked about this study was that it was um, very USA-centric. There, there wasn't any papers from anywhere else. I think there was a couple of papers from Canada, but most of the papers came from the USA. So clearly there's a need for us to do some research here in the UK as well. So this is Lane and colleagues who basically looked at the literature for the pre-hospital identification of sepsis and concluded that, well, the data isn't that good. But this is really important because people are starting to propose the regionalisation of services for sepsis. So we've had stroke centres, we've had cardiac centres, we've had neurocentres, trauma centres, of course. And now people are thinking about other disease groups. And sepsis is one of those that people have actually started thinking, well, actually, we should send all our septic patients to one area. But you can only do that if you've got effective pre-hospital triage tools. And this suggests that we're really not there yet in terms of the evidence base. So it's quite interesting to look at this from the methodological point of view. But the, the key message here is we're a bit weak in the evidence. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. I was, I was very disappointed, actually, to see that there weren't any papers from the UK around sepsis you know, since we've had surviving sepsis, you would imagine that there would be a little bit more uh, research around the topic. Well, there's some fantastic pre-hospital studies in progress at the moment, so it wouldn't surprise me if they get onto it fairly soon, particularly if they're listening to this. So just looking through the rest of the journal, there's quite a few other papers in this month, some really interesting ones, some experimental ones, looking at how you keep patients warm in the pre-hospital environment. That's quite interesting and worth a look. And there's some interesting images to look at. There's a quite an interesting wrist x-ray which you go and have a look at. And there's some best bets, of course, looking at various different topics, shortcut reviews, looking at pre-hospital blood and, well, an interesting one which will be controversial to the phone world, which is should real resuscitationists use airway checklists? Because that's pretty controversial in the world of Twitter. So plenty of things to look at. Mary, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for doing the primary survey for the EMJ. And no doubt we'll hear from you again again in the future. Thank you. And thank you to everybody who's listening, and make sure you read the MJ, it's worth it. <laughs>